You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, we are going to save our big Last Dance breakdown for the Friday show, just like we did last week. And there was a lot of stuff to get to. Michael Jordan digs into his gambling. Uh, he addresses uh, his apolitical public stance. He starts to get too famous for his own good. And, of course, he knocks off both Clyde Drexler and Charles Barkley in the NBA Finals back-to-back years. They dove into all of that stuff uh, this past weekend. But we're going to put that on hold, like I said. I do want to dig in, though, to just one angle, uh, Jordan-adjacent Jordan angle, and that would be basically his hit list because I think we've got a running theme here, <laughs> don't we, Michael, of guys whose heart he's starting to break and guys he's starting to taunt a little bit um, in, in some of these interviews. And it just got me ruminating last night. I mean, people could do like a top five ranking of who were, you know, Jordan's, uh, you know, the the biggest guys left hanging by Jordan and the Bulls dominance, guys who didn't win a title, guys who didn't really achieve maybe the level of fame and fortune and success they thought they would. But after watching those episodes, the guy who really popped off the screen to me, um, First of all, for just kind of being honorable how he handled it in terms of not making any excuses and just kind of taking his loss, but clearly understanding that he's been living under that burden now for for basically 30 years almost would be Charles Barkley. And I'm just curious, Michael, I want to do a little debate here, okay? I'm going to make Mm -hmm. the case that Charles Barkley has basically had his life ruined by Michael Jordan more than just about any other uh, person or player from that era, and then you're either going to agree with me, or you, you're probably going to disagree with me, I would imagine, and if you disagree, uh, you're going to make a counter-argument. How's that sound? That sounds wonderful. I mean, this there's, there's so many options to choose from, but I feel like we narrowed it down to a solid two. Well, I need to say this. Um, I really like Charles Barkley as a commentator. I think longtime Open Floor listeners know that. I respect the honesty. I respect... Uh, the frank, direct approach. Michael, you know what I hate? Generic praise. You're not getting any generic praise from Charles Barkley. He's not patting you on the head and telling you did, he did, you've done a great job. He's not afraid to go after big targets. And look, look no further than Michael Jordan. Those guys were really close friends. Now they're estranged because Charles Barkley said something that angered him, right? So if he's willing to go after MJ, who he's known for a long time, he is not going to be afraid in the slightest to go after guys like a Draymond Green or the Golden State Warriors at their peak. He's incredible at uh, poking the right buttons uh, to anger basically anyone, and I think that's a big part of this job. But I still think he mostly does it in good faith. Every once in a while, he might stray outside the bounds. Um But uh, for the most part, I think he truly believes what he's arguing, and he's got a lot of experience to back it up. The reason why I try to frame this discussion around Charles Barkley's current profession is because by virtue of being denied a title by Michael Jordan in 1993, by virtue of basically having the worst possible timing of any superstar-level player, I mean, imagine coming in in the same draft as Michael Jordan— rising to all-star status on almost the same timeline as Michael Jordan, 
getting to your peak years in the late 80s and early 90s at the exact same time as Michael Jordan, and then ultimately making it to the finals once in your entire career, 1993, playing just absolutely incredible basketball throughout that entire postseason, feeling like you're the best player in the entire world, and then having Jordan just turn in one of the all-time legendary finals performances to send you home in six games, um, that's got to be a very, very bitter pill to swallow. But here's the thing, Michael, he's got to wear that pain publicly every Thursday night on TNT, right? (laughs) How often do we hear from Shaquille O'Neal, you're not in the club, Chuck. You're on the outside looking in, you know, or uh, LeBron's got the G14 certification or whatever these terms that Shaquille O'Neal comes up with to kind of diminish guys like Charles Barkley who have never won it before. And it's like one thing if you've, you know, you, you, you struggled your whole life, your incredible resume, which includes an MVP, 11 All-Stars, 11 All-NBAs, two gold medals. I mean, you've accomplished everything there is to accomplish. You got your jersey retired by your college and two of your professional teams, but there's one hole in the resume, but that hole winds up defining you. That is just a tough, tough spot to be in. And I just feel like he's got it even worse than everybody else because he's out there as this big, easy punching bag because he's you know not afraid to, to say what's on his mind. And he cultivated a reputation as a very valuable player for decades. Uh, now he just has to take everyone's arrows all the time. It seems like for a guy with less good humor than Charles Barkley, that would be the most miserable existence that you could possibly imagine. It's almost like a horror story that someone would come up with where you know your daily Groundhog Day existence is to just be mocked for the one thing you didn't accomplish. You know what I mean, Michael? This is like not a very enviable spot, and yet Charles pulls it off with this great style and great good humor. I respect him a lot, and I'll say after watching those episodes... I got a lot of sympathy for him. You know, he was a real baller uh, throughout that stretch, particularly in 1993, and that stuff gets forgotten because of everything I just mentioned. I haven't seen the the uh, most recent episodes of The Last Dance yet, but I assume that Barkley is interviewed in them. Is that is that what you're kind of leaning towards? Does he does he appear in the docs? Yeah, it's very brief, um, and basically his interview boils down to, I'm not going to make any excuses, Michael was better than me, and I thought he handled it very, very classy, and I do think that the documentary, and I I mean, to be honest, this documentary could just be anti-Isaiah Thomas propaganda, because I think (laughs) the documentary tries to put up Magic Johnson and Charles Barkley in a different manner than they did Isaiah. Like Isaiah is considered to be this kind of coward who walked off the core and and didn't have sportsmanship and and Jordan hates. Whereas with Magic, they're shown hugging in the back hallway after the 91 finals. It's this idea of these guys are kind of brothers and they're seen laughing during the Olympics. And then with Barkley, it's a similar deal. I mean, Jordan and Barkley already had a friendship at that point. Um, They're known as golfing buddies, and they're hanging out during the Dream Team. And then also, Barkley was very gracious in defeat. He's not making any excuses. He's just, look, you know, Jordan was better than I was. So I wasn't feeling sympathy towards Barkley for anything he was forced to say or any of the situational stuff. I think they were actually went pretty easy and pretty light uh, on Barkley in the documentary. It's more just this idea of like, what an existence, right? To be, you know, an MVP level player, to be throughout the 90s, I mean, uh, you know, a top five level guy for a lot of that decade. And even in the late 80s, uh, you know, on those Philadelphia 76ers teams, as he started to become the main guy, 
he's running into Jordan in the playoffs two years in a row, and he's getting sent home in five games. And those series are done so quickly that they don't even appear in the last dance, right? They're kind of like forgotten by history uh, because there was a bigger fish to fry with with the Detroit Pistons for Michael Jordan. So like he's not even, you know, quite on that level uh, before the trade to Phoenix. So I just think that he's constantly running into this Jordan brick wall. Uh, like I think it's like 90, 91, and then 93. He poured his entire heart in that 93 season. I'm just going to read you his stats from the closeout games in the 93 playoffs, mm-hmm. okay? First round against the Lakers. He has a light 31 and 14, okay? Second round against the San Antonio Spurs, 28 and 21, okay? Seattle Supersonics in the conference finals. He goes for 44 and 24. <laughs> so we're saying season on the line basically three times against pretty quality opponents at that point uh, of history, especially the, the Spurs uh, and the Sonics. And he's just going absolutely nuts. And then on top of that, he gets to game two, which he's describing as, you know, essentially the best that he could play throughout his entire career against the Bulls. In game two, he happens to have 42 points and 13 rebounds, and yet Phoenix loses because Michael has 42, because of course Michael has 42, right? <laughs> it's just, th- that's the the frustrating part, I think, uh, that there's just no way around it. There's nowhere for him to hide from this stuff. Um, you know, and, and his personality makes him this big target, like I mentioned. Um, that's where the sympathy factor for me comes from. It's like sometimes you just have to take your losses, you know? As takesman, Michael, we realize this every once in a while, we might happen to get one wrong. I just can't imagine being haunted by a loss for like three straight decades and have, you know, Shaq rub it in my face every single week. Wouldn't you snap at some point? I might do the uh, go the Carl Malone route and just never be heard from ever again. That, that would <laughs> just go high. That's probably my existence. If this is if I, if I'm in Charles Barkley shoes or Carl Malone shoes or any of these guys, like I don't really want to be. I don't want people being remembered of my constant failure. But I will say, like with Barkley, all those numbers that you just read, like he was incredible. So. It's like there's no shame really in losing to Jordan, and I think he's come to peace with that because it's not like he choked or shied away from the moment in the in like during those games, during those big moments. Uh, so I feel like he can hang his hat on just knowing and being secure that he performed to the best of his ability, and he happened to lose to the greatest player who ever lived, and there's really nothing wrong with that. No, it's a great point. I I think he's sort of haunted by that because it's the what could have been or I wish I had it. But it's not like every morning he's waking up and saying my life was incomplete because I lost to Jordan. I, I think you're right. He did say there's no shame in losing to Jordan. And he said that very convincingly. I believe him. At the same time, though, if you are being kind of heckled and painted this way, and it's not just Shaq, right? I mean, I think that Barkley is mostly known as a player in that group of guys who couldn't get it done, right? He was the guy who just never won. Um, You know, one of the best players to never get a title. And to have that, like, you know, to be tarred and feathered with that label 
for year after year after year. It's not like you can stand up and retort and be like, what do you want me to do? Jordan was better. Everyone's going to be like, all right, yeah, dude, we get it. But you still lost. You still didn't get one. You know what I mean? And it's just, there's just no really good way to counter it. And trust me, Michael, like if anyone was going to come up with a good counter to this you know, lambasting, it would be Barkley, the funniest guy who's ever existed in the NBA <laughs> media circles, right? And he still hasn't figured out a good counter all these years later, besides just owning it, which I which I do respect. But your your point on Carl Malone's great. This is why I, f- I feel for Barkley more than a lot of Jordan's other hit list people. So like, you know, you might say Patrick Ewing or Reggie Miller, Carl Malone, John Stockton, like those guys are all in that same club of 90s players mm-hmm. who never got over the hump. If you look at Carl Malone and John Stockton, at least they got two shots at Jordan, right? At least they got that second time to try to do it. Um, and at least they can share the burden of losing together right? And as you mentioned, at least they can hide out. I mean, John Stockton's hanging out in like empty gyms in Spokane, Washington, watching all of his kids become uh, the future of uh, NBA basketball. Look, they might not be getting that brawny attention on TikTok, but the Stocktons are coming (laughs) for everybody. Uh, It's just a different lifestyle for those guys, right? It's a little bit easier to manage. With Reggie Miller, he is in the public eye as a broadcaster, but he was never on Barkley's level as an MVP type player, you know, carrying a team all by himself and all that kind of stuff. Reggie Miller was very good. I'm not trying to diminish him, but he was not on Barkley's level as a player. And then with Ewing, Ewing was absolutely tortured by Jordan. There is no way around. I mean, go all the way back to college and you can make a very long case for Ewing. But Ewing just never really captured the public imagination like Barkley did. And so I think that's the distinction where, again, Barkley is just kind of a bigger target um, you know, people might kind of like make fun of Ewing because he's just this big kind of clunky center at times. And he kind of had the dorky knee pads. And, uh, you know, he's he's easy to kind of mock just because, you know, a lot of people rooted for the Bulls to beat the Knicks because the Knicks had such a physical style. Um, but he's not capturing the heart, capturing everybody's minds and attention. He's not this lightning rod in the same way that Barkley was. So again, I think it just Barkley had it worse than uh, than all these guys, uh, you know, after all these years. So this is not some huge Charles Barkley pity party. I don't want to draw this out much longer, but I just, again, I, just like we did with the Pistons uh, on last week's episode in terms of like giving them their own due, letting these guys write their own stories rather than just being the people who lost to Michael. Consider that Barkley... You know, took the you know took over in Philly, put up monster advanced stats, some of the best numbers you're ever going to see in the late '80s, bringing them into the playoffs. Goes to Phoenix, hits the ground running, is the number one player on the number one offense in the, the league that year, leads them to 62 wins, and then tries to keep them in the mix for multiple Western Conference Finals. Uh, you know, after that that initial height in '93. And then has one last gasp with Houston, which is sort of a ring-chasing moment, not his finest hour. They were able to go to the Western Conference Finals at least, but ultimately he falls short uh, and never gets the second chance uh, back on the final stage. So, um, you know, I think that there's a tragedy to Barkley's career, but there's an awful lot of success that deserves to be uh, respected. His numbers are outrageous. If you look at his stats from 93, they're almost on like Giannis uh, 2019 MVP level stats, uh, which might shock some people. I mean, that's the, the kind of numbers Barkley was putting up. And for all those reasons, I say, Charles Barkley, we salute you, the player. We salute you, the broadcaster. Um, and thanks for playing. Okay, that's all I got, Michael. <laughs> What's the counter argument? So um, my pick here is is Patrick Ewing. And Okay, well, but before you get into that, okay. did I convince you or are you pretty certain 
that Patrick Ewing had it worse than Barkley. I'm certain that Patrick Ewing had it worse than Barkley. You laid out an unbelievable case. I think it's really difficult. Obviously, I'm not going to sit here and argue that uh, Patrick Ewing was more... Uh, I'm not going to argue that Patrick Ewing was better than Charles Barkley or more transcendent or more unique or more unimitatable than Barkley. And if you just look at, obviously, like their personalities and all that and you weigh that in, then, yeah, Barkley is... He takes up a larger size of real estate and I think every NBA fan's brain just about, especially those who, you know, were not Knicks fans in the 90s. But why I went with Ewing, it's kind of primarily steeped in just numbers and what actually happened. And obviously Ewing played. Uh, uh, so let me let me just go through the numbers here um, because they're the, 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 the bedrock of my case. So you you kind of brought it up a little bit. So it goes back to the 1982 College National Championship game. Uh, you know, Ewing's on Georgetown. Michael Jordan is on UNC. He hits the essentially the game-winning shot. That's the first. That's like the beginning of the heartbreak here. In 1989, the Knicks lose. Yeah, and and no small prelude. I mean, let's no. be real. Like one of the biggest college basketball games of all in time. the history of that sport. One of the most anticipated matchups. Ewing had all the pressure at that point of their respective careers, right? Wasn't he the number one ranked high school guy coming in? Just this incredible seven-foot specimen. I mean, I think that he was seen as kind of a foundational player for that program. Um, and I think the program got a lot of love because, you know, Georgetown's a respected institution and here their basketball team's amazing. So for him, that loss weighed more than it did on anybody else on that team, for sure. Sure. Uh, beloved. They eventually won it all two years later. Um so in 1989, uh, this is a, this is this is really brutal. In 89, they lose to the Bulls in six. In 91, they're swept from the first round by the Bulls. In 92, they lose in the second round in seven to the Bulls. In 93, they lose in the Eastern Conference Finals in six games to the Bulls. And then Jordan takes some time off, and Ewing is not able to get over the hump against the Rockets uh, in 94. Um, and in 96, and then the Pacers in 95, and then in 96, they lose in the second round in five games to the Bulls again. So that's five playoff series in which Patrick Ewing loses every single time. Um, the saddest part of that might be the fact that they got through the Bulls when Jordan wasn't there. Does it almost make it sadder? You know, like if they had won the title, then it's fine. All bets are off, right? But you get through the Bulls finally. Everyone's going to say, oh, but they didn't have Michael Jordan. And you and there's no counter to that. But if you go on to win the title that year, it's like, who cares? You know, you can you can talk yourself into saying, look, we could have won four titles if it wasn't for Jordan. Um, but instead, they fall to the Rockets. And now you're just at a whole different level of tortured. Um, and you don't even really get to celebrate beating the Bulls because Jordan wasn't there and no one's going to give you credit for it, right? Exactly. So here's where we get into kind of how Ewing has separated himself in my eyes. So not only does Ewing, you know, not have a title, um, and then the Knicks go to the finals in 99, basically without him. Uh, but of all the players Jordan ever faced in his entire career, he had the most total wins against Patrick Ewing with 49. Um, the most total games with 70, which ties Joe Dumars. Jordan was 30 and 13 against Ewing in the regular season where he averaged 32 points, six rebounds, five assists, and two and a half steals. His 
Field goal percentage was higher than Ewing's, and Jordan averaged more four more free throw attempts and 10 more points than Ewing. So that's just the regular season. And I just really want to quickly point out that when you... Well, hold on one second, because uh, I just pulled up the exact same head-to-head thing. Yeah. So I need, you to, I need you to do the exact same thing, but for the playoffs, because his playoff numbers are even funnier. Please uh, yes, give us the record. Uh, <laughs> I was about to go in there, but right before I was going to do that, I was just going to say that it's not a you know the be all end all because as you pointed out Jordan obliterated Barkley in the playoffs every time they faced off against one another I think he averaged forty points per game <laughs> in sixteen games which is just hilarious but Barkley actually had a winning record in the regular season against Jordan I don't know if you knew that I saw that I saw that last night I couldn't believe it uh, it was just barely above five hundred in the playoffs Jordan was yeah. like twelve and four against yeah him, right? decimated him um, yeah and. And two of those wins come in the in the Sun series where, again, Jordan... I mean, Jordan's numbers during that finals were absolutely insane. I mean, he's averaging 41 points, shooting 50% from the field, 40% on threes. Um, arguably the greatest final series by anyone ever and arguably the best and most dominant individual playoff series of Jordan's career, although he had a whole bunch of them. So... Yeah, it's definitely a quality versus quantity thing. But I mean, the thing with Jordan versus Ewing, it's like pick any moment of their careers and here's Jordan just torturing them. I mean, their first game in the NBA against each other, Jordan goes for 50 at Madison Square Garden on opening night. (laughs) It's like, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the Michael Jordan experience, Patrick, right? Even their last game, I'm looking here at the game log in 2001, when Jordan is on uh, the is Washington Wizards, Wizards Magic. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Patrick Ewing's on the Orlando Magic. And of course, Jordan outscores him 12 to 8, and Washington wins the game in 2001, just before Christmas. I mean, just taunted this guy at every step. And I think those playoff battles, they got more painful and more intense from the New York side as each one of them unfolded, right? I mean, it's just sort of like, are we ever going to be able to do it? And they're just like bringing in these mercenaries, you know, like uh, Anthony Mason and Xavier McDaniel. It's like, how many guys can we load up the front court with in hopes of sending Jordan or Pippen and preferably both to the hospital? Because that's the only way we're going to get past this team, right? And so there was definitely an insane level of bitterness that... uh, that, that built up over those years. But read his playoff stats, Michael, because it's crazy. Yeah, real quick. I mean, Jordan goes 19-8 and eight against Ewing's Knicks. He averages 33.1 points, 6.4 boards, 6 assists, 2.1 steals, shoots 47% from the field, 34% from the three-point line. I mean, 10 free throws. It's like, just, it's torture. And the reason why... I'm putting Ewing here is obviously they never faced in the finals or on a stage that big, but Ewing was drafted as like the great symbolic hope for one of the most, uh, I guess, popular franchises in professional sports in this country. And for him just to stumble repeatedly on big stage, I mean, that's kind of like the story of Ewing's career. He's an all-time great center and all that, but... The fact that he just, you know, he came, comes up short in the finals against Hakeem and then, you know, struggles against the Pacers in that series after with Jordan out. And just Jordan was the roadblock throughout all of his prime, pretty much. And he was never able to win it all and carry the New York Knicks to the title that everyone thought they were going to see when they first drafted him and they won that, that controversial lottery. So, like, just 
from that perspective, Ewing is just such a mega disappointment, and Jordan is probably the biggest reason why. Yeah, and we should point out, I mean, in the regular season, Patrick averaged 22 and 10 against Jordan, which solid numbers cool. in the playoffs. He averaged <laughs> 22 and 11 in the playoffs. Again, solid numbers. I actually think, don't you, I don't know if you agree with this. Mm-hmm. Ewing was outgunned from a team standpoint too. Like Jordan was definitely a lot better than Ewing. And again, I'm not going to like shame Ewing for that fact. But I actually think that especially when the Bulls entered the title mode, that their teams were just a lot better than the Knicks top to bottom. Um, Even if it was just a matter of chemistry or or the pieces fitting together or whatever else, I I do think that, uh, you know, Jordan had more help uh, than Ewing. And that winds up, you know, making it arguably sad for for Ewing as well. This idea of like, look, I, you know, I just, I I got outgunned by a better player. And, you know, I was kind of fighting with one hand behind my back. I mean, I like John Starks a lot, um, but I think that some of the players on those Knicks teams, there was an aura that built up around them because they were in New York and because the Jordan versus New York matchup was so juicy that we kind of remember them or like, I guess, general basketball intelligentsia remembers those guys better than they actually were. I think the the great irony there is that, uh, you know, his number one teammate really was Charles Oakley. Just the guy who he appeared in his in the most playoff games with, and Charles Oakley is the player who a lot of people view as you know the trade piece that kickstarted the next stage of Jordan's career. So that's that's pretty ironic, you guys say. Like, the, and I totally agree with you. Like, he didn't have a Scottie Pippen. He didn't have a great point guard. He didn't. I mean, John Starks is basically that guy, and that's not what you want. <laughs> so. That's a bummer. Well, so here's what a, bo- a great case on, on Ewing's behalf. Here's what it boils down to, Michael. I'm going to say you're an all-time great, okay? Would you rather have one shot against the guy who's haunted you on the final stage? And I guess Barkley did get beat three times. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, – but, I mean, one real shot uh, where it's like prime versus prime and then you're kind of never heard from again and you're kind of chasing the ghost of that shot. Or would you rather be Ewing where it's like, look, bro, you can have as many shots as you want. You're still not going to get past him. Like You could play him 10 times in the playoffs. What is a more difficult experience? And then also, as a follow-up, would you rather be Charles Barkley forced to be tarred and feathered every week for your loss? Or would you rather be Patrick Ewing, head coach of the Georgetown men's basketball team and be forced to wear a Jumpman logo on your polo shirt (laughs) while you're being interviewed for this documentary discussing how Michael Jordan just eviscerated you throughout your career which which is a worse lot in life it's Ewing for me like if I'm if I'm Patrick Ewing like I'm not even in really the discussion when people bring up Jordan and his greatness like for Barkley it's like yeah people will always talk about that duel in the 93 finals like there's really nothing that even compares with Ewing and and Jordan so I gotta go with like Ewing not even getting to the level and not even like if you're Barkley you could it's obvious it's very painful to get that far and to come up short but you gave it your all and you know there's a universe out there where uh, the ball bounces you know Paxson misses that three in game six whatever the ball bounces differently and and somehow you win and you can talk yourself into that and sleep well at night if you're Patrick Ewing it's like there is no other universe out there. I don't care how, if there's a, a an infinite number. You're never beating Michael Jordan. You were never good enough. But does that set in? Because Barkley does ha- has described to me in interviews and other interviews, including on the documentary, 
when he went into the 93 finals, he legitimately thought he was the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's just, you know, it's like the classic Kevin Durant or LeBron James thing where like when it's that close or there's at least a discussion, you know, you believe in yourself and you convince yourself of those things. And then after a couple of games of the finals, he realized that, nope, he was second and that hit him pretty hard. And he still talks about it all these years later with Ewing. I imagine after he gives up a 50 ball in his first game against Jordan in the NBA, the settling and the negotiating, the, you know, the self-talk stuff has already begun, right? It's like, oh, God, I'm going to be dealing with this guy for the next 15 years of my life. And he may be going in on a different mental attitude. Like, maybe he's not taking it as personally as Barkley did uh, just because Jordan was Jordan. Is it possible? <laughs> um, it's possible, but, like, if I'm Ewing... I think I'm like doubly depressed by the fact that Jordan was out of my way and then I also wasn't good enough to beat Hakeem a year later. And then the year after that, I was also not good enough to get by like, who was it? Like Rick Smiths. Like that's, that's tough. I mean, that and that's just like <laughs> that, that mentally I, I would really struggle with that. And I mean... There were a lot of great centers during that era, but to be the third or the fourth best one when you were supposed to be this transcendent big, like the best defensive anchor since Bill Russell, and and you just came up so badly short, like that's just a tougher pill to swallow. Whereas like Barkley is like, I mean, he's just remembered, I think, first of all, like when people talk about the dream team, I I know the dream team was covered in the doc and I, I have not seen it yet, but a lot of people say that Barkley was the best player on that dream team. And so at least he can hang his hat on something like that, where it's like he was in his when he was in his prime and Jordan was in his prime, they like they went toe to toe and the margins were not overwhelming, I guess you could say. Like there's no shame in being he won an MVP and there's no shame in being the second best player in the world when the best is Michael Jordan. Yeah, I hear you. Um, Here's one final stat that just is going to make Patrick Ewing's life absolutely miserable are you ready for this born ready in their head-to-head matchups in the regular season between michael jordan and patrick ewing there was 10 40 point games okay michael jordan had nine of the 40 point games and in those games chicago went nine and zero. patrick ewing had one 42 point game <laughs> and the knicks lost <laughs> because Michael in that game had 47. (laughs) Yeah, that's... Oh, it's like, even at your best, you're not quite good enough. And when Michael's at his best, your team has no shot. That is the story of both Patrick Ewing and Charles Barkley. Two different, uh, I guess, flavors of the same bitter pill. All right, Michael, we're going to shift gears here because we got a really fun question uh, from Bruce up in Canada. Now, Bruce was replying to our expansion draft. You'll remember you picked a new roster for the Seattle Supersonics full of aging, pretty mediocre veterans or a little over the hill, mm-hmm. might be able to sneak into the playoffs. And I picked this incredible upstart team, the San Diego Pines, uh, who was ready to you know take over the, and dominate the next decade of the NBA with our great youth and talent. Um, if you guys haven't heard that episode, go back and listen on last Friday. It was a really fun exercise. But during that episode, we were trying to figure out which uh, players would be protected in an expansion draft by each team around the league. And we gave each team three guys to protect. And we sort of came to the conclusion that the Raptors would still probably protect Kyle Lowry um, as they're trying to go forward 
you know, staying in that title contention window, which, uh, you know, kind of led us to think that a player like OG Ananobi, a young rising player for Toronto, might be available. Bruce did not like this. He <laughs> writes, Kyle Lowry is available. I'm from Toronto. You think we would have lost our minds when DeMar for Kawhi happened and that we're just a bunch of nice Canadians who care more about nostalgia of the team than actually winning. Not true. We've tasted championship gold up here. We've grown up and we could handle Masai Ujiri not protecting Kyle Lowry. Look, he's available. I can't believe there was any debate about who the third guy was who would be protected by Toronto. OG was not, is not going to be available. Come on, guys. Show the reigning champs some love. So his argument basically is that the future is very, very bright for Toronto, that they're going to take um, OG and they're going to try to retool maybe around Van Vliet, OG and Pascal Siakam, and they're willing to cut Kyle Lowry loose. They're not going to be caught up chasing that incredible 2019 title run of the past. So Michael, here's the way I want to spin this question for you. Kyle Lowry to me is at a really interesting juncture of his career, right? Like if if they kept the team this season together, I think they would have him be a top three protected player because he's good. He's at an all star. <laughs> he's an all star level. He's incredible, and he's like kind of one of the engines to make that thing go. He's their second best player by, besides Pascal Siakam. And if you want to say he might even be their most important player in, in terms of his role, ball handling, and all that, there's an argument to be made there. And Toronto was on track potentially to make a run to the Eastern Conference Finals. If they, if anyone was going to beat Milwaukee, get to the finals, they're in that conversation. You know, it's a short list of teams in that group. Let's just say this season stays suspended and doesn't come back. This is a big time lost year for a player like Kyle Lowry. And if we fast forward to whenever the next playoffs would be, he might be a different guy just based on his age, right? So I'm curious, are there any players in the same conversation where maybe Bruce is looking ahead and predicting Kyle Lowry is going to kind of fall off here going forward in the future? Do you see any other players like that around the league who we might think of one way right now, but by the time the shutdown ends, whenever that might be, uh, let's just assume that they're not going to be able to resume play this summer. Uh, they might look like a different player. For you, who else is in that category? LeBron James. No, I'm just kidding. That was, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> well, it's not It's not a crazy suggestion No, to put LeBron James on there. I mean, nobody misses out or loses more by not having a playoffs this year than LeBron. And that's why he's so adamant that he wants to play every time the topic comes up. Right. LeBron's like, every, everyone that I've talked to wants to keep playing basketball. It's like, yeah, LeBron. Well, if you ask Bronny, Bryce, and Savannah, they're all going to support you in getting your fourth <laughs> ring, right? Like, ask some of these lottery teams whether they want to, like, come back and risk their health to play five meaningless games to finish out a TV season, and they're not super excited about the idea. Yeah, I'm not I'm not, I'm not. not willing to—I can see the argument. I'm not willing to go there with LeBron yet just because I, I don't think he's a human being. But um, most of the players on my list here, I, I guess, like, actually all of them, none of them are stars or— anywhere as good as Kyle Lowry I still think when the season resumes or whenever it comes back Lowry will he might have lost a a a step a little bit but he's he's still been just so productive for that team and so important as you said which is why I I think that they would not let him uh be selected in our hypothetical uh expansion draft um so I'm just gonna read you some names and you can just kind of give me a reaction after each one. How does that sound? Sounds like great radio. Let's okay, beautiful. So first up for me, he might have already been washed based on what we saw when he came back. 
after he was traded after the deadline. But number one for me is Andre Iguodala. I wow, it, yeah, wow. No, wait, you just wanted a reaction, yeah, right? That's what I, you asked thank for. You, yes. uh, no, <laughs> I think he's he's already done. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think that's it. I mean, I'm not going to put him into that Vince Carter category mm-hmm. where like coronavirus imposed retirement. Um, but I was not impressed by his early play back on the court. Were you? No, not not at all. Uh, I, I mean, I think he could have worked himself up back into being a productive and positive player for the Miami Heat whenever they made the playoffs. But he's he's no spring chicken. Um, Mid thirties. Well, the, but he did a great job on this contract finesse oh, sure. to get all this money, yeah. and like he sat out the entire year, negotiates a new contract. I guess now he's going to be getting seventy five percent of it because they're withholding wages. As long as there's a season next year, that like let's go play golf and disappear from the Grizzlies strategy, even though it was you know pretty <laughs> reprehensible at the time, is really going to pay off. I mean, a very cushy golden parachute for Andre Iguodala going into coronavirus retirement. Oh, for sure. Um, so, but he's obviously not on the level that he was even I guess like two years ago last year uh, when he was still just a, such a critical player for the uh, for the Golden State Warriors. Um. The other guys, I guess, like, I'll try to go down instead of in this random order that I have here, but I'll try to go down the list in more, I guess, recognizable names and names that are relevant. Uh, so th- We want the biggest possible okay. names. We're trying, to go, <laughs> we're trying to go viral, Michael. Take some shots here at some legends. Okay. So the next up, I have Marvin Williams. Um no, I'm just kidding. Next up, I have <laughs> next. <laughs> next, I'm, I'm telling jokes today. <laughs> Look, you're getting your reactions. I'll tell you that the reaction is me throwing my my uh, tea mug <laughs> across my uh, my kitchen and shattering. We can have that live in the background of the show. Yeah. So no, Mar- I love Marvin Williams, but and he could be all done for all we know. But um, no, he's not. He's not here. Um, Next, well, that's a great that's a great one though because the Bucks, yeah. were kind of like savvy on that pickup, right? I kind of like sure. that. Oh, them. yeah, for sure. And, and and now it's like, well, that did that all that planning and all that great work by the front office go for not? It's uh, it's one worth mentioning. I should not have brushed it off as as um, shamelessly as I did. Who else you got? So I guess in terms of star power or one time star power, the the next biggest name for me is Dwight Howard. Um, Ooh, that's a good one. He, this was, I mean, he was on path to, like, I don't know if he should have won comeback player of the year or, or some, he, he should have been acknowledged for the, I guess, the positive strides he made and no one expected, he's on a veteran minimum contract, no one really expected him to be as productive off the bench for a, a title contender, really. And you could see... I mean, yeah, yeah he, could, he could have won most improved sportsmanship, MVP candidate, mm-hmm. uh, All-NBA first team. Definitely. I mean, the, the list of accolades that Dwight Howard kind of, uh, you know, put himself into the conversation for, obviously being facetious there on the last couple, he had a crazy good season for the Lakers. It came out of absolutely nowhere. He was the benefit of them capturing their chemistry in a bottle and really nailing it. How long does that last, right? Um, open question. And how long does uh, Dwight's body hold up as well as it did this, this past year compared to some of his issues previously? Another huge open question. I actually now, am, am I feeling bad for Dwight Howard, Michael? Are you feeling bad for Dwight Howard? A little. I mean, I've always been pro-Dwight, I think, for the most part. And I was happy to see him kind of get his life and his career back on track when this was clearly his last shot of 
anything close to relevance. I mean, the guy shot 73% from the floor in a meaningful role for a very good team. I don't think anybody saw that happening. He, you know, we've lambasted him for years for refusing to accept a sacrificial role. And the fact that he did it and he did it so well and he wasn't, you know, whining publicly at all ever. I mean, you got to tip your cap to him. And the fact that now he's 34 and I mean, when I looked that up, honestly, I was surprised, even though he's been around forever and uh, so reliant on athleticism for a majority of his career. So this this could have been it for him. And that's that's a bummer. Well, this explains a lot because I think you read more books than anyone that I know, um, you know, and and I always appreciate when you kind of wave them over or you hold them over our heads on Instagram. So we all feel like lesser people <laughs> based on how many books you're reading. But I think a lot of people turn to books because there's an inner loneliness and this idea that you're the only person in the world who's always been pro Dwight <laughs> Howard. That must have been a very, very lonely existence for you, Michael. Is this why you read so many books? Just because you're disappointed with the rest of the world and you realize there aren't any other like-minded people out there I'm for definitely you? disappointed with the rest of the world, but <laughs> it has nothing to do with my uh, my love for books. And I will say, in a, in a previous life, before I did this professionally, I would argue with people that Kendrick Perkins was better than Dwight Howard in like 08, 09. Oh, yeah. no. So um, pre, pre-torn ACL Kendrick Perkins, shout out to that player. He was great. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, he's probably coming back a different player after the pandemic. Uh, that's for sure. Um, okay, any other? Give me like one or two more names. Right sure. Uh, in terms of star power, Carmelo Anthony. This has got to be it for him, right? Like, oh man, he was going with such a nice rejuvenation chapter. Too. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of. I mean, I I never really bought that story to be completely honest, but he exceeded my expectations, so I'll give him credit on that. Um, but yeah, that's a good one. Who else you got? So this is a real... I mean, I got some obvious ones that I'll just throw out there, like Tyson Chandler. I mean, that's just someone who has had meaningful NBA moments, who's very old and was technically on the Houston Rockets this season and, you know, obviously was out of their rotation as they went small and played, you know, Robert Covington at the five instead of him. But like... I don't know. There could have been like one moment at some point where everybody is in foul trouble and he comes in and he has this like spark. He gives them a spark or something in the playoffs. But I feel like now it's I I highly doubt that he is uh, going to be back next year. I mean, I could be wrong and someone brings him back for chemistry issues or for just a positive locker room presence. But on the court, he's he's done as a contributor. It does kind of feel like maybe he's going to be an assistant coach the next time mm-hmm. we see him, right? And that, w- that would be a little bit sad. It's just incredibly illustrious and long career. So much hype coming out of uh, you know Compton, California. I saw him play in high school and this crazy seven-footer. I mean, just completely unstoppable at that level. Um, it would be sad if that's how it ends. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker, 
comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. Michael, I'm going to take you to task. I've got three names... Bigger fish than a lot of the uh, the names that you mentioned. Not as big of a fish as LeBron, but I think uh, I think some of your your personal blind spots and biases are okay. showing in in the case of two of them. Can I can I wait, the first wait, wait, one's wait, wait, wait. Can I guess who one of these are because he's on my list and I just didn't want to say his name. Okay, Chris Paul. No. no. <laughs> uh, okay, who else? Uh, I th- I figured you would do it. So uh, Rajan Rondo is he on your list? No, he's not a big enough fish oh, for me. I mean, oh, come Jesus on. Christ. Okay. Uh, Chris Paul. I'm going for your heart oh, again, no. Michael. What a season for Chris Paul. And the and the wall is coming at some point. Everybody was two years early on it. That tends to happen. Now we overcorrect back, and everybody wants to say Chris Paul is an all-NBA-level player, which he was this season. I think he he keeps himself in great shape. Um, obviously, he's got plenty of room to you know wh- wherever he's living. He's got just max contract after max contract, so he's probably got access to a full court hoop. That's going to help him after the coronavirus shutdown. I just worry that this was a really important year on his personal timeline, and that by the time we get to the the following year's playoffs, he just might not be in that same spot. Um, you know, probably looking at his age 35 season at that point, it gets to be harder uh, as a point guard. Doesn't mean he's going to be useless, right? Um, you know, much like John Stockton, he could be a very effective player, you know, deep into his 30s. But he was a star level guy this year in terms of overall impact and contribution to winning. And um, again, their chemistry was just perfect. All the teams that had great chemistry are the teams that I'm kind of feeling the worst yeah. for because it's so hard to recapture that right now. Yeah, Chris Paul. Second oh, guy, real quick. Uh, okay. Chris Paul's birthday is actually tomorrow. Turns 35. Um, well, that's that's pretty <laughs> ominous. And you know, again, probably should have been on your list, Michael. If we're being honest, I think you like him a little. If too he much. if he stays in Oklahoma City, I feel pretty optimistic about things for him for a little while longer. If he's traded to the Knicks, it's like a just a free fall from that this point on. I don't think he's he's sticking with the vegan diet if he gets traded to New York. Yeah, that's Ewing on the magic. Um, let's. I'm going to go one more shot at mm-hmm. your heart here, and then I'm going to throw you a bone, okay? okay? Shot at your heart would be P.J. Tucker. Oh, um, wow. Damn. PJ, PJ T- I love P.J. Tucker's game. I think that real basketball heads understand crazy value, particularly in the playoffs for that team. It's the straw that stirs the drink uh, from their chemistry and their defense standpoint and everything else for Houston, right? This can't work forever, this undersized thing, right? <laughs> there, At some point, his body has to give out. And I'm not rooting for this, obviously. 
I've just been concerned like over the last three years worth of battles that he's been involved in. It's incredible how long he's held up. He's already well past his 30th birthday. Um, he plays huge minutes. He plays lots of games. It's just, again, things change when you get into your your, your mid-30s, right? And you get a little deeper into it. And the problem for Houston is if that P.J. Tucker slips meaningfully, like let's just say a 10 or 20% slip, or he just is in a situation physically where he just misses 10 games for 15 games for a season, I just think it dramatically impacts everything they're doing, even after they got Covington. And so that would be my concern for him. It's not that he's going to fall off a cliff. It's just there's going to be some marginal decline that winds up kind of spoiling the rest of that picture. What do you think? I didn't even consider P.J. Tucker just because, like, you know, we talk about LeBron as not being a human. Like, the things that P.J. Tucker has been able to do, he's just not a human. And, yes, the physical toll of his defensive responsibilities is enormous as an undersized five in a lot of nights. But he also has, like, no offensive responsibilities but stand in the corner. So I think that that kind of balances it out in a really beneficial way for him. Also, it's it's difficult to kind of measure this, and I don't even know if it would be a positive or a negative. But in his early 20s, uh, you know, uh, he spent five seasons overseas. So he doesn't have the NBA grind on his on his body. He has a different kind of grind. And again, like playing in Israel and Ukraine and, and in Italy and Germany and Greece, like I don't know if that's better or worse. I know those teams don't play quite as often, but the the amount of rest you have in between well, games is different. So I can't really quantify that. No, it's definitely better for him because fewer games, not NBA level athletes, mm-hmm. um, not the same, just insane playoff series that we, we go through here in the NBA. So it's a good point, but it's also like if you buy a used car that only has 10,000 miles and then you start driving it 20,000 miles every year, right? Like at some point you're, you're throwing that benefit, that accrued benefit from the, the past owner uh, out the window. And that's just kind of where I think PJ Tucker is. Here's my last one on a softer mm-hmm. note for you. Okay. And I'm just, this is me teeing you up, you know, just imagine you're MJ on the golf course, you know, betting $57,000 with Slim Bular. That's a reference that you'll understand as soon as you watch uh, episodes five and six, Michael. Um, Al Horford, are we going to hear from this guy again? <laughs> Damn. I'd like to think Al Horford's like one of my all-time favorite players. I love everything he stands for. I'd like to think that his absolutely atrocious season with the Philadelphia 76ers is more the Philadelphia 76ers' fault than his own. And the role that they had for him and and all that, I mean, they paid him. He wanted to take that money. That's wonderful. But I still think if he were to, I still think he could be like a starting five on a pretty good basketball team that had more complimentary pieces that kind of made more sense. Maybe a point guard who can shoot threes, um, space things out a little bit for him. Uh, So I don't look, I think he's definitely on the decline here. And his three-point shooting was a little bit of a a cause for concern. You know, I don't really associate that with age, but it did dip in big spots for him this year. So I don't know. I mean, I always thought that he would age remarkably well just because of his touch and his vision and how smart he is on the defensive end, how how he anticipates action. But his knees have been bad for years, and, you know, it could be an overnight thing where he just kind of plummets, but you know, 
I hope that it's more of a situational, contextual decline than age-related, even though he is certainly on the back nine of his career. Yeah, I mean, I just worry that the Apollo Global Management Sixers um, (laughs) may come out of the coronavirus shutdown and just look to dump his contract, right? And so we could get like a Sacramento Kings chapter for Al Horford that could just be incredibly dark. And again, like we just never hear from him again. I think that's one possibility. The other possibility is that they come back after the shutdown and there's certain high-profile teammates that he's got who put on 35 pounds just, you know, out of nowhere, Um, in which case that means they're not going to be title contenders anymore, and that just spoils the whole idea for him to go to Philadelphia. Um, It's also possible that he just declines from an age standpoint enough where they have to just basically say, hey, you're coming off our bench for the time being, and we're just diminishing your role. Um, I just think there's a lot of different ways that things could go wrong for Al Horford, and there was a brief moment there last summer where I really felt like Philly was kind of on the chess move side of things where we're, we're going to do everything differently. We're going to have the number one defense in the league, super smart guys, and Bede's going to uh, flourish with Horford and everything else. And I just feel like this season, obviously, it didn't pan out that way. And I feel like the shutdown is kind of slamming the door on a lot of that uh, momentum or uh, narrative juice. I think it's just kind of gone. And I feel like, unfortunately, through no real fault of his own, although you know maybe he should have weighed his decisions a little bit better last summer, Horford's going to wind up bearing the brunt of that. But let's flip this around to close the podcast out, Michael, because I know you wrote a piece uh, last week for SB Nation um, describing guys who are going to have bounce back campaigns after the current shutdown. And you targeted guys, some who were older, uh, some who were younger. Why don't you share a few of those names um, and and briefly why you included them? And there's a couple who I want to ask you follow-up questions about, if that's okay. Yeah, I mean, this was a a fun little exercise idea. Um, Just guys who didn't have the seasons that I think a lot of people expected them to have for various reasons. And, you know, it'd be hard to call what they did anything but disappointing, but uh, next season, you know, for a variety of reasons, I could see them bouncing back. So, uh, you know, at the top of my list, the first guy I really thought of was Marvin Bagley in Sacramento. And that was uh, almost entirely just health related. But the way I see Marvin Bagley is like, I, I like a lot about his game, but I feel like the way he is viewed is, so much in the prism of this guy was selected ahead of Luka Doncic and Jaron Jackson Jr. And I mean, he was selected ahead of Trey Young, but the Kings were never going to take Trey Young because of De'Aaron Fox. So that's not fair. But like, just the organization passed on Luka and they took this guy. So no matter what he does, he's never going to be Luka. And that's how people are just going to perceive him forever when I think that he has all star potential and he has a lot of natural physical gifts. And we saw them a little bit in his rookie year. We saw them a tiny bit in his sophomore season when he was healthy enough to play. But he just couldn't stay on the court. So I think like a a year three leap from him is not something that should catch people by surprise. Well, he was exactly who I wanted to to ask my follow-up questions about. So thanks for going there, Michael. (laughs) Um, My first question is, you don't wear glasses, right? Do you wear contacts? I do not wear either. Perfect vision. Yeah, you clearly do have perfect vision because I've been looking pretty closely. I haven't seen this this all star <laughs> flashes that you're describing, and I, I got some good glasses. They're real fancy. You know, my optometrist rips me off. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that on air, but I feel like I get overcharged by my optometrist. But that's neither here nor there. 
Um, what are these so-called all-star flashes? And I want you to put a finer point on it. When is this guy going to actually make the all-star team? Because I'm scared. I liked I, I liked the idea of Marvin Bagley, kind of. I don't love that context and situation for him. Don't love the roster composition up there for yeah. him. I feel like his skills maybe need to be adjusted in some ways to kind of make him a little bit more quote-unquote modern. I feel like he probably has to fill out from a physical standpoint to really be a big-time defensive player. How long is it going to take him to get where he needs to go, Michael? And what does he look like when he I gets I mean, there? look, I, I don't disagree with literally anything that you just said. Like, he has a lot of obstacles in his way right now. The fact that he plays for the Sacramento Kings is a humongous bummer. Um, the fact that he really has no solid uh, or, like, cementable role right now on that team where you don't even know what position he would play given the other pieces that are on the roster, that's that's not great. Um, when I look at him, I see just obvious pedigree. Like, even though he should not have been taken ahead of Luca, like, throughout that entire se- season, his entire year at Duke, he was putting up monster numbers and... Um, effortlessly like the way he plays he's got touch he's just so smooth he glides up and down the court I think that his jump shot can be a reliable weapon at some point in his career hopefully sooner than later I think that he has flashed a passing ability that we haven't seen on a consistent basis and if he's in the right system if he's with the right teammates I just think that he's a walking mismatch uh, someone who could play the four and, you know, bully ball, smaller guys, stretch fours down low. He's already shown an ability to be comfortable in that spot. So if he can step outside and, and even just respectably hit threes or even like a pick and pop elbow extended jump shot, I think he'd be a very good player. And like he just turned 21 last month. So to say that this guy could be an all-star at 25 I just don't think is out of the question I would not bet my life on it but when you consider the pedigree the athleticism all the natural physical gifts that he has on both ends I just think that the sky is the limit for him I'm with you I mean he, he has a lot going for him um, I would say that he is in this category of players like I'm not sure exactly how you're spending your quarantine, Michael, but I've been <laughs> I've turned myself into an absolute psycho. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm walking eight miles every single day, no days off, trying to get myself basically in the best shape of my adulthood because why not? It's still legal at this point, and, and you know I'm wearing a mask and trying to be safe and all that stuff. Um, there's got to be guys like Marvin Bagley who look at this shutdown as an opportunity to just get up ten thousand three pointers a day, right? to just do absolutely nothing but rework your shot from scratch and just practice, 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 practice. There will be people who come back from this shutdown and the work will show. I don't know who they're going to be. They're probably working out in silence right now. Not everyone has access to gym and facilities and all that stuff. But I hope guys like Bagley, where we're saying, dude, you can be an unreal player if you're a knockdown three-point shooter and defenders have to respect you at the three-point line so you can go by them with one dribble and get to the rim right Mm -hmm. if he comes back with that layer to his game or someone else comes back uh, having put in that work that's i'm really one of the things i'm really excited to see you know after we get out of this coronavirus shutdown is which players have taken uh, this time seriously and have really you know addressed that aspect of their of their game because there's so many guys whose entire ceiling would change uh, if they could be knocked down legitimate three-point shooters, that's the whole name of the game right now is spacing. 
um, you know, put him in that category for sure. One other guy who you had on your list, Michael, was Aaron Gordon. Um, walk me through your thought process on him because, you know, when I was hearing you talk about Bagley, I heard a lot of hardcore analysis, but I also heard a little wishing, you know, a little wanting. Sure. It seems like you're you're kind of rooting for him a little bit. And I feel like you might be on deep end here with Aaron Gordon. You really want it to work for Aaron Gordon, don't you? I do. I do. I mean, when he was coming out of Arizona, like selected fourth overall, I just saw this player who made so much sense in the modern game, uh, particularly on the defensive end. If you just, you know, his versatility is off the charts. Freak athlete can definitely stay in front of almost every ball handler in the league. He's strong enough to, you know, body up the bigger wings and uh, uh, be that guy, that lockdown defender on, on all-star caliber playmakers. But like offensively too, he's just very fluid. I saw someone who would make a lot of sense in an up and down system and, you know, potentially being exactly what Sean Marion was for so many years. And like, to go back to the conversation about fit and role and who's around you and what system you're in and who your coach is, like it just has never fallen into place for Aaron Gordon. And one of the most disappointing things that I talked about in the piece was when, you know, Frank Vogel comes into Orlando and proclaims that he's going to use Aaron Gordon like Paul George. And a lot of that was because of how the roster was built and they were not able to play Aaron Gordon in the front court, he had to be the three. Um, and that's a bummer. But like that statement ever since, I feel like Aaron Gordon has tried to be Paul George. And that's just not his destiny as a basketball player. And I don't think it ever was. And so trying to, you know, hit tough mid-range fadeaways and, and, and unleashing your handle at every opportunity and dribbling into turnovers and uh, you know, doing all the things that Paul George is actually able to do, but you are not. It's like, it's it's been hard to watch. But when I do see him and I see that, you know, he's one month younger than Kendrick Nunn, which is like, it just makes my jaw drop. He's only 24 years old. There's still so many obvious skills with his game. And for him to drop off in a lot of disturbing statistical categories this season when he should be improving like three points three point shooting is scoring those should be still going up it's just like i almost i mean i do blame the player quite a bit but i blame the situation far more and i just really want to see him out of orlando in a different situation it's so funny because i've wanted and believed in aaron gordon for a while i've tried to be as patient as i possibly could but hearing you be so optimistic about him michael has actually driven me to the <laughs> pessimist side. It really has. I'm not kidding. Are you sure he's not just Jeff Green with a rap account? You know, is that possible? Are we? Can we talk? Are we? Are, it, we are we about to talk about the Raptors? Because I watched that this morning, and um, we can get to the Raptors in a second. Okay. But is it just possible that? I mean, first of all, you're right. The Paul George thing's never going to no. happen. Is it just possible that he doesn't have? that consistent impact motor ability to just drive the game where he's there's sort of a bystander effect when he plays and that if you did change context even if you you know moved him down the pecking order into a system and you know he wasn't like a main guy 
is he always going to just leave us wanting? Is he one of those guys who's just physically incredible? He has, uh, you know, those moments of the dunks or the block shots, sort of like a Jeff Green where your jaw is dropping, but he's never putting it together in a 48-minute context. Um, you know, night after night after night after night. I'm, I'm at that point with him where the age stuff is no longer, um, you know, that convincing to me. It's like, look, if you come in at 18 – I'm going to give you three years. If you're 24, I'm no longer selling your hope. You kind of are who you are. Um, I realize that might sound a little bit harsh. Uh, we do see some late bloomers every once in a while. I just think the bloom has bloomed. We are where we are. <laughs> so let me ask you this, this hypothetical here. So I, I, I proposed a, you know, the, the, a trade that we've talked about, I think, before, which was sending him to Brooklyn for Spencer Dinwiddie in some form or fashion where he could be someone who impacts games without the ball, doesn't have to score. He's next to Katie and Kyrie. That type of role would be really ideal for him. But here's another just hypothetical scenario. Like if Aaron Gordon was on the Miami Heat instead of like we, we talked about Andre Iguodala there before, if he was on there in the Andre Iguodala role, but it, it would obviously be a little more broad because of what he can do in his career that Andre no longer can. Like, is that, what do you think about Aaron Gordon in that situation? Like, is he thriving? Is he helping the team win? Is he holding them back? Like what? No, he's, he's definitely a positive player. I just don't think he's like a centerpiece level player. And I guess when I'm coming in and saying, okay, you know, he's like top five level pick, lots of hype coming out of college and high school, like you mentioned. I mean, huge high school stats. He was a big deal here on the West Coast um, when he was coming up. And I don't want to write him off completely, but I'm just not sure he's like a, a core piece on a really, really good team, right? Like to me, in a heat context, he's like a fourth starter, Well, so, right? well, so that... like, what do you think about when I say he could have been like Sean Marion 2.0? Are you just like, hell no? Or are you like, that makes a lot of sense if he was in a different situation? I mean, I just, like Sean Marion's a Hall of Fame level right. player, you yeah. know? Um, and Aaron Gordon, I don't see that. I think that we would have seen progress towards that. Um, or we would have seen frustration with his his context in Orlando, right? I mean, I hate to tell people to demand trades and like ask their way out and everything else, but look, like bottom line is if you were as good as your draft slot indicated and you're taking all these steps forward and the context is holding you back, at some point you're like, get me the heck out of here, right? Like I have bigger dreams in this situation and we just have never seen that kind of come to a head there. I'm not like faulting him for being a loyal soldier. I'm just, you know, like I think that he has more or less kind of settled into his NBA existence, if that makes sense. For sure. I, I like, I maybe the Sean Marion thing is a little too much, because, yeah, he Sean Marion is a Hall of Fame player. He's won a ring and a huge role, and I don't know if Aaron Gordon could just, you know, it's you're making a lot of assumptions and you're making a leap of faith to say that Aaron Gordon, if you were to plug him onto a team with a lot of talent, he would just find his way and, and help them win in a, in, in a major... Um, and have a major impact. Uh, so maybe I'm going a little too far, but I also am not trying to argue that he should be the centerpiece of anyone's grand scheme, like at all. Like his, I think his destiny is as the third best player, the third offensive option, maybe the fourth offensive option, and just absolutely critical on the defensive end is more kind of the the point I'm, I'm trying to stick home here. No, I got you. Well, here's my concern. Okay. 
He gets traded. We all get really excited. We watch his first two weeks of games, and then we're like, well, he's exactly the same player. <laughs> it wasn't actually, there was, yeah. you know, the contacts didn't do him any favors, but it's mostly a him thing. And I think generally in these situations, we get so sick of talking about guys who are kind of like hamstrung in, in different uh, you know, circumstances that we're just so desperate to see them trade. We talk ourselves into the positive side of it. And then ultimately, like, you know, the trade happens and... It's like, oh, yeah, same old guy. I and mean, we saw that with Jeff Green four times throughout his career. But I don't want to be this negative on Aaron Gordon, Michael, because I think that he released one of the most important <laughs> songs uh, across any musical genre of 2020. It's entitled 9 Out of 10. It's a rap song where he's taking kind of subtle disses at Dwayne Wade throughout the entire thing. A lots of memorable lyrics. I mean, along the way, of course, he's talking about the fact that he was snubbed during the 2020 slam dunk contest that you and I were both at and outraged mm-hmm. by. Um, he mentions that Adam Silver told him that he should have won. He mentions that he was consoled by Jesse Jackson, which I think was just a great detail from him. Hopefully it's true. I imagine it is. I don't think he would uh, take too much liberty with the hyperbole. He talks about how he jumped over Taco Fall in the rap. It didn't really seem like the internet liked his rapping, Michael. I think the internet underrated him. I thought the rap was actually pretty good. Decent flow. Pretty funny video. Maybe not the most natural on-camera charisma, but underrated. And I love the fact that he put it on wax, uh, you know, kind of taking shots at D-Wade. He let it all out. You know, he he, he really was honest with himself and, and how he felt snubbed and angry about all of it and how it cost him money and everything else. I appreciated the candor from Aaron Gordon. I'm going to say it was a great rap song. What it was a, a, a tragedy, honestly. Um, I have no, I mean. Wait, this the song or the dunk earlier, contest? Or early, earlier when you said uh, that you asked me about my eyesight and my inability to uh, to see uh, Marvin what Marvin Bagley has to offer. Now, I'm, I'm wondering if you've gotten your ears checked at any point over the past year or so, Ben. I think that you might need to see a doctor for that one. Uh, this was... My hearing actually has been ruined by attending NBA games for a decade, so... <laughs> Fair enough. You, my, my, in general, my senses aren't doing great, Michael. I could talk pretty loud. That's so, about it. So um, real quick, like... I, the, the song is a tragedy. Yes. You're going to go that it's, far. I mean, the unintentional comedy of watching i mean the music video is just hilarious i love that he's got the wine i believe that wine is Dwayne wade's wine uh which is just just great um i think that he has this is just like a player and a person having way too much time on their hands as we all do right now um and maybe it should have been uh um, express. Well, Michael, I and mean, that's something that we I could see us doing this in like two months when we run out of uh, <laughs> topics to cover. And by the way, everyone should keep emailing us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Otherwise, you could get a slam dunk contest rap from yours truly and Michael Peter. Could I just read a couple lyrics, maybe to appease the people who actually want to hear me rap? Well, here's the deal. If you're going to read them, don't read them all half-hearted and try to like, you know, make fun of them calling it a tragedy. I mean, get into no. it. You know, read it like he <laughs> read it and make this sound, you know, nice and and um, you know, uplifting. It was a great song. All right. Okay, I I have a I'm going to read a a verse here real quick, but 
it's mostly because I don't even understand what it means, and I have the lyrics for the whole song in front of me, and there there are some that are pretty funny and 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 clever. But this one right here, so uh, six years in the league, just wet in my feet. The Miami boys is cool. I'm still checking the heat. What do, can you explain to me? What what the hell that means? So he had a crisis halfway through the song where he realized <laughs> this could go very badly for him, Michael. You know, he realized that there could be a real backlash that he might not have enough internet swagger to pull off a, an online war with Dwayne Wade, right? <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, you have Gabby, uh, you have all the banana boat boys who are going to stand up for Dwayne Wade. So I think he just choked a little bit halfway through the song and had to, like, just toss in a line about the idea that he respects the heat and, you know, it's it's not, you know, personal and it's all in good fun. And that was my most disappointing thing, actually, about the song is that he walked it back so quickly after he released it and just tried to make good with Dwayne Wade. And they were doing an in- Instagram Live together, I mean, come on. What happened to the days of Nas versus Jay-Z where thing really got personal and people just, you know, you knew where they stood and they went back and forth for a few rounds. This whole buddy-buddy thing um, bothered me. I'm not trying to sound like Bill Lambeer here, but um, I just think he was too quick to kiss and make up and throwing out that little line to the heat bothered me for sure. Okay, what other lyrics do you want me to break down, Michael? Queen Latifah said we do it for the fans, showed these scars, and she said she understands. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, you remember he was dunking so hard during the contest that his arm was like ripped <laughs> was up because he was hitting it against the rim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I was there. So, so you're talking about pouring your whole heart and soul into your endeavors, mm-hmm. Michael. You're putting your entire mental power planning for months to have it ripped away callously by the judges. A true entertainer and performer like Queen Latifah would understand that pain like few of us could, Michael. The way I read it was that Queen Latifah was like, calm down, because he was probably flipping out in the back. And I actually saw Queen Latifah that night walking around, and it was amazing. That's a little sidebar. But uh, he's complaining. Queen Latifah's like, yo, relax, like, as long as it was a good show, whatever. And then he points his arm to her, and she's like, okay, I, I get it, um, and then continues on on her way uh that's kind of what i was envisioning when i heard the lyric which is not it's not something you want to put down not not to be play amateur psychologist here but this maternal vision that you have of queen latifah it really seems to kind of be speaking to your soul like do you just want queen latifah to give you a a conciliatory hug of course it doesn't you know just maybe make you feel better during a very tough time she's the best yeah (laughs) best part of the song (laughs) well we got we got to the bottom of that clearly that's a you thing not an aaron gordon thing um but continue what else you got um i guess that's you pointed out adam silver saying i mean if adam silver actually that was a hot line. Yeah. You got to give him a No, you I mean, if Adam Silver actually did that and he got called out, I mean, Adam Silver obviously has bigger fish to fry at the moment, but uh, that was that was good. I, I like that. Um, also, so when he, he has the Uncle Drew line, um, is he, who is he, who is he talking about there? Is he talking to Shaq? Is he talking to Kyrie? Is he talking to Dwayne? I never saw Uncle Drew. Is, is Dwayne Wade in that movie? Like, I didn't understand that one that one that one went over my head i don't know if you have any answers if there's anyone in america michael who's not going to see uncle drew it's yours truly okay (laughs) i mean uncle drew 
is basically stands for everything about basketball that I want to undo. Um, so I, I can't interpret that one for you. I imagine they cross paths at some point during the filming of that movie, maybe, perhaps. I mean, it's clear there's a relationship here between Aaron Gordon and Dwayne Wade, and that's part of the reason why he's so hurt. You know, Dwayne Wade's coming up in, to him in the hallway before the uh, before the contest and telling him good luck, and then you know he's he's fixing the the you know the results <laughs> after the fact. I mean. I would be pretty upset about that too. <laughs> sure, um, and I would rap about it too. I, I have a lot of respect for Aaron Gordon for, for sticking his neck out there. And look, bottom line is, I don't think anybody liked it. No. Um, I think it lasted maybe half a news cycle. So a good thing that we got to it two weeks later. On that note, Michael, uh, we have wrapped up another edition of Open Floor. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Top five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Email us, like I mentioned, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Who had it worse? Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, somebody else that we didn't mention, maybe Carl Malone, Aaron Gordon. Let us know in the emails. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Villasinvictorpina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver. On Twitter, at Ben Golliver. Check out my Washington Post newsletter. This week, I dove into the Charles Barkley, uh, you know, hit list angle uh, of, of losing to Michael Jordan, what it meant for him, his other disappointing moments uh, in the playoffs along the way. Uh, so if you didn't get enough from this conversation today, go check that out as well. Michael, until later this week, when we're going to be breaking down in full episodes five and six of The Last Dance and taking all sorts of great questions from our listeners, I will talk to you. Ducks and Ben. Bye.